Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucking knots? Might have made it into the cut. I hope everybody's okay. I am in New York City. It is very hot. It is muggy. Uh, it is humid. I don't know how many more ways I can say that. Uh, everybody is sort of damp and tired and exhausted. Hair products aren't working. People look tired. Dogs look tired. On the train, they just feel like like, like weird pressure-cooking death tubes. But I don't know. I find it sexy. I really do. I find the exhaustion in people's eyes to be somewhat enchanting. I don't know if you've ever been on a hot subway when it's muggy and people are really have just given up on themselves. There's just no way they can muster up the energy to maintain any sort of appearances. They're slightly cranky. And for some reason, to me, that is just hot as fuck. Is that wrong to think that a exhausted woman who doesn't even have the energy to resent me for looking at her in a lascivious way is sexy? Does that say something about me? Is that too much information? I'll tell you where I'm at. Right now, I am at the Chelsea Hotel, the uh, the infamous or the famous. I don't know what, I guess it would be infamous. Does infamous mean that something shitty happened here or it's known for something shitty like Sid Vicious killing his girlfriend? Is that, does that make it infamous? Does it make it infamous because all the Ramones at one time or another, give or take a Joey, might have done dope here? And it's the Chelsea Hotel. It was in the Leonard Cohen song. Uh, see, Brendan Behan wrote about it. Uh, some people died here. It's a big, creepy, weird old place. It's well known as being a sleazy old hotel, but also beautiful in its, uh, in its romantic corruption. How's that? Not a great place. Uh, I have been here once before, uh, twice actually. I have two hotel Chelsea hotel stories, including the one that happened yesterday here with my friend Jessica, who uh, flew out to uh, spend some time with me at the Chelsea, and she's never been to New York, so I figure why not get the full treatment? Let's go to a really shitty but infamous hotel for the first three nights. The first story I have about the Chelsea Hotel happened to me many years ago. Before I even lived in New York, it must have been 1989 or, or even before that, maybe 88. I'd come down here to do comedy. I was, I was living up in Boston and I would drive down here sometimes for the weekend to try to get in at the clubs. Uh, there were other comics around. You know, all the guys were just starting out. Louis C.K. and, and uh, Nick DiPaolo and a few of the New York guys that started out around that time. We'd just all run around and do stand-up. But I hadn't moved down here yet. And I was drunk and sweaty. There was this comedian named Leanne who was hanging around. We were both getting drunk and we wanted to fool around, and we didn't know where to go. And I remember Louis had told me he had gone to the Chelsea Hotel to do some business of some kind. And, of course, even at that time, I was competing with Louis in my mind. So I said, let's go to the Chelsea Hotel. That's where people go to do dirty things. And I remember getting a room at the Chelsea Hotel, coming up to a dirty room, and doing some dirty things. And then I remember walking out the next morning to check out and I had obviously no baggage, and we all looked, uh, the two of us looked pretty worse for wear. And the guy, who I think still works here, he might not, his name was Stanley, I believe. The guy at the counter, as I was checking out, looks at both of us and then looks at me and says, do you want a receipt for what you did? I thought that was very clever, to the point where it stayed with me some however long it's been, 20 years. The second time I came here was after I left uh, my first wife. 
I decided I would live at the Chelsea Hotel. It was a very sad day. I thought they had monthly rates, which they don't really. So I came here. I remember I had a knife, a fork, a bowl, a plate, and a box of puffins. And I rented a room here at the Chelsea. And these rooms, depending on which ones you get, can be really sad. They're all some degree of sad, but they seem to have made an attempt to make it quaint in here by antiquing the walls. All the furniture looks like it was picked up off of the street. It's a small room. I, uh, it, but the one that I was in that day was so depressing and dark. I, 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 it, was like, it looked like uh, the suicide suite at the Chelsea. But now I've got, I kind of like the room today. And I was very excited to have Jessica come and come to the room. And then last night after the gig at Union Hall, uh, I'm like, this is it. This is the Chelsea. And you walk through these halls. There's long corridors. They almost look industrial. 45% of the people that are here uh, are residents, apparently. They're mu- they must have some deal with the city. There's paintings all over the wall from past artistic, artistically inclined uh, residents who used to give the paintings to the hotel as payment. It's, it's, there's a long history to this place. So I'm pretty excited to have her come in. And we walk in, and I turn on the light. And I don't, I, didn't, I don't think I realized just how filthy the carpet was. But then, like, right there on the floor is one of them giant dead roaches. But not just a roach roach, not just sort of like the roach that travels in packs with a bunch of little roaches, but one of them water bug roaches, those mini dinosaur-looking motherfuckers that are just huge and filled with white goo. One of them was on his back, dead, just swaying there in the middle of the floor. And it was like, welcome to the Chelsea Hotel. That should be the postcard for the Chelsea Hotel. It's just a giant, dead, stinky water bug on its back with its legs all up. Maybe I'll make that postcard had I not flushed the guy down the toilet. So I want you to enjoy my conversation with Paul Provenza. Paul Provenza, I have known for God, I don't know how long. It feels like forever. He used to do a show on Comedy Central when I was a child, just starting out in comedy. His new book, Satiristas, has gotten some popularity. I'm in that. I'm all over that book. And I finally got him in the garage to talk. Thank you so much, you guys, for coming out to, uh, to, uh, to Union Hall to watch me try to work out my set for England. I'll be in London next week at the Soho Theater. And tomorrow, the 23rd of July, I will be at Great Scott's in, Boston, in Alston, Massachusetts. I will be at Great Scott. Great Scott's. Is it Great Scott or Great Scott's? Whatever. Alston, Massachusetts, my friends. And again, thank you in advance because I'm recording this the day before. Thank you in advance for coming to WTF Live at Comics. See, I don't want to, I don't want to go, I don't want to go overboard with the thanks and pretend like I'm recording this the day after when I'm actually recording this the day before. Because what if something really weird happens? Or what if it doesn't go right or well? I can't say like, "Wow, Jeff Garland was great," because I don't know yet. Ah. Time travel. It's very difficult being a time traveler. It's very difficult for me to be in the future right now. But I am. I'm in Thursday. Today is Wednesday. Enjoy Paul Provenza. The guest in my garage here at the Cat Ranch overlooking the barrio of Highland Park is Paul Provenza. <laughs> Paul Provenza, a, a, I don't know, you know, Paul Provenza, I've known for probably 25 years. At and, least, yeah. Yeah, and he's just the kind of guy where you're like, he shows up places. You go to Europe, it's like, why is Paul in the bathroom <laughs> in Europe? I'll be in the bathroom anywhere <laughs> yeah, you go. Yeah. There's Paul in the bathroom, but 
I don't know, going back, you know, I was thinking about you and about what I know of you. By the time I started doing comedy, probably 89, 90, 91, when I started doing the first TV appearances, you had Comics Only. Right. The talk show. Right. Where you only interviewed comics. Right. Which is similar to what I'm doing on some level. Yes. And it's also, it's also, it's sort of like the sophomoric junior high school version of what I'm doing now on Showtime. Right, but it was, uh, it was, I don't remember it being that sophomoric. I remember it being you at a desk and there was, you did a few jokes and you had two comics on per show. It was a half hour talk show. Right. The th- reason I remember it, the, the reason, the reason I say it was a sophomoric version is because it was, it was, um, uh, that's easier to say than primitive. But uh, it was a primitive version of it. You know, I've always wanted to capture that feeling of just hanging out with comics. And in that case, it was a, a, a very formatted, very structured kind of thing, which is very different from what the Green Room Show is. But, the, but that thing's been burning in me for a long time. The Green Room Show, which I'd like to uh, say I opened. You uh, did. You weren't even there. And I you wasn't killed. there. And I, I, Paul uh, did a joke of mine, which he credited to me and did very well. You I, see, I would, have fra- I would have put it as uh, I quoted you. Oh. Did, what did I say? Did uh, did my joke? Oh, I'm sorry. He yeah. he quoted well, that's me. That's a difference between you and me. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. I, I wasn't <laughs> taking any. But you know the the reason I remember comics only is I did that show. Yeah. I was on that show, and and we, I think it taped here. Yep. And I remember being there because when you tape them, you stripped them, so you did four shows or did what two in a day or yeah, four like in a day, three in a day, and two. in so a day. So there's like nine guys waiting around, and I remember I was waiting backstage with Norm McDonald and Bill Hicks. And I can't remember who else. They, they weren't, I don't remember who was on my show, but I remember sitting there. And the reason I remember it is because I was trying to quit smoking then. And I had acupuncture tabs in my ears. Oh, I vaguely remember that. Like they, the acupuncturist had stuck these things into my ears. Yeah, staples. Yeah, they were like staples or tacks yeah. or something. And I remember being there talking to Hicks about that. And he's going, well, does that work? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. I got him in my ears. Like, I hope I don't, I, nothing works for me. Like, I just remember him having that moment where it's like, uh, I, I don't think I'd do that. I'm not going to quit smoking. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, ironically. But but now here you are. And a lot of people don't, like, I tried to put you in the context. Like, now you're doing the satiristas. You're sort of a P.T. Barnum of a, of a, <laughs> of this. <laughs> you're kind of running. You got a lot of plates in the air and. You're championing... You know, I watched uh, a lot of Ed Sullivan as a kid. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm turning into Ed Sullivan. You're championing, but you're championing aggressive, uh, forward-thinking, political, and, and activated comedy, you know, original comedy. Uh, that's uh, You seem to be championing that, you know, on TV and in the book form, the new book, uh, Satiristas, Comedians, Con- Contrarians, Raconteurs, and Vulgarians, which was put together by Paul and the photographer Dan Dion, uh, is out now. And what I guess what I want to ask you is, I remember seeing you, by the time I, you did Comics Only, by the time I did Comics Only, you weren't doing stand-up that much. Oh, yeah. I've, 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 there, was only, there was a period of time where I specifically stopped doing stand-up. I've been doing stand-up since I was 17 years old, virtually nonstop. But you were of the generation of a little younger than Seinfeld, a little younger than Riser, but I mean, those were your contemporaries, right? Pretty much, yeah. And what I recall is you were sort of a, a cute... A likable observational comic yeah and when you started right and then you disappeared and you came back angry and full of the beans 
<laughs> was that an up statistic? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 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 No, I have always gone through massive transitions. And that's one of the reasons why I left the country, actually, why I started going overseas was because I was, I, 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 I had, that's the period right before I left the country is when I took, uh, I planned on taking about a year and a half off. Mm -hmm. What year are we talking? Oh, we're talking um, about 10 years ago, maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to take about a year and a half off. And that year and a half turned into about two and a half years. And then I wanted to go back into it. And in that two and a half years, by the way, I, I had done a lot of stuff that I'm really proud of. I did, I did a series called Beggars and Choosers, which was little seen, but really, really excellent. Where was that show? On Showtime. Okay. Um, it was produced by Brandon Tartikoff's wife. It was basically based on Brandon Tartikoff's experience. Uh, running a network it was a sort of a satire of his experience it was a sitcom a uh, uh dramedy is one hour okay really know. yeah and you acted in that or you yeah i actually it? played a character um modeled after a jerry seinfeld type character i was the stand-up comic on this network that uh i was nothing but trouble yeah uh, you know this is where it diverges from seinfeld himself <laughs> yeah. but i was the seinfeld uh you know uh, sitcom guy uh, I had this big hit sitcom and the network was in trouble. So they had to sort of, you know, I had them over a barrel all the time. Okay. Um, and I also happened to have uh, gone to uh, college with the, the guy who ran the network. I kind of remember this. Yeah. And um, uh, so it was fun because I got to play a comic playing a character on a sitcom and being an asshole. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah. really fun. Yeah. Uh, so I had done that and I did um, I did Steve Martin's play on, on in New York off Broadway for uh, you know about a year. I had you... did, done a lot of nice work, work that I was happy to be doing and, and it kind of it kind of filled the reason I stopped doing stand up was because I, I felt like I'd lost my voice. I felt like you know what that grind is, you know, if you don't if you don't it becomes it, very limiting. It becomes very limiting. When you get to a point in your career where the majority of the audience is still not the crowd coming to see you, they're yeah. just coming to see quote unquote comedy. Oh yeah. That's yeah, I, yeah it's I, horrible. I, it's horrible. I mean I like I'm there. I mean I am there. Yeah, I, I know. know exactly I, what you're talking about. Uh, You've been doing of course that. you do, yeah. Twenty five years and you realize that you know, you're, you got a half a house of people that, you know, most of them don't know you. It's like it's like having to lay down a foundation at every show. Of getting Which people is fine. To that means you're you just doing you. the job, and it's, it is fine. But you know, for, if you have, it, it gets tiring. It's it discouraging. Gets tedious, it's discouraging. I mean, doing the it's job frustrating. is fine, But that's mostly a pride thing, don't you think? I mean, no, it's, it, no, it's not a pride thing. It's a work thing. Because in order, you know, when you get your own audience and your own audience sort of knows the way you think and yeah. knows what you're all about, then you can go to other levels. It's up to you whether or not you reach other levels. But you do at least have the opportunity. And I felt like I was always, no matter how much I tried to do that, a number of things were happening. First of all, I was constantly having to, you know, um, prove myself to the audience before I could go where I wanted to right. go. Um, I had to answer to club owners, but which is but like, that's not you know, a horrible thing, the uh, proving no, yourself. No, but after that many years, it just gets tedious. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. It just becomes, uh, you know, I, I, I got Sorry. into comedy because the last thing I wanted to do in life was have a desk job and have to answer to people. And at this point in my career, after all that much time, I felt like I was in a rut, uh, yeah, and I might as well have had a desk job, and I had to answer to people I didn't want to answer to. It's Look, it's I'm not saying it's rational. No, no, I'm just no, no. But I'm just saying I know exactly what you're talking about. But I think a lot of it it's just disappointing and it's discouraging because you get to the club and you're like, "This is it? Did you guys? Did you put? Uh, did you put put a poster up? Or did you advertise? Uh, yeah, and just you know, and it, it was not an ego thing at all. It really wasn't because, as a matter of fact, the irony of it is that now that I have uh, a profile again, yeah, uh, I'm only doing stand up when I want to. Right. So it's not an ego thing. 
I get you know, it. I, it I, you know, I get it. But it, but but it was frustrating, and it's like it's just like you know, again, it's like it's like doing a play. You could be a phenomenal actor, and after a year or two of the same part, you just want to do something else. You want you want a different dynamic, and that's what it was like for me. So I had taken this time off and done some great stuff. And we, then I, acting I felt, in a play is great. Yeah, doing a TV part. Yeah, so you kept working. Yeah, yeah, and and doing really cool stuff and and spreading my wings a little bit, but then. I had sort of been addressing some of the personal issues that I was dealing with in like that what? time where I needed some time off. You know, like um, just, uh, you know, you reach that point in life and just you start questioning everything. I mean, my, my creative... Like why live? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that started happening about my 20s. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just reach... Uh, I felt like I was reaching glass walls across the across the, uh, the board, uh, both professionally, creatively. Is it that moment where you're like, you know, life is short. There's not that much left. What am I doing? It's more like life is short. There's not that much left, but it's enough to know that I don't want to keep doing this this way. Okay. And what else is it going to be? But Scary. so I had taken this time off. Yeah. And then after about two and a half years, I decided that I wanted to go back in because I felt like my head had cleared. I felt like there were things I wanted to talk about. I, I, I could see myself on the other side of that glass wall. I just wanted to break through it. So I wanted to get back into stand up. And then for about two and a half years, I had uh, pathological stage fright. Get out of here. Yeah, which is really, really difficult because I'd been doing it since I was 17. I had been like open micing at like 16, you know. But like, how does that manifest itself? And what was the first, when did it first happen? Um, I don't know when it first happened because it was a little while uh, until I realized that that's exactly what was going on. But it, it started with sort of personal things. Like I would I would book gigs and then cancel a week or two ahead of time. Uh, I would always have excuses why this wasn't going to work out. Um, um, and then uh, it got to the point where I'd be on a plane and I'd get to the airport and turn around and go back home and say that, you know, I had, uh, to the gig. Ebola. You're on, oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Ebola. Yeah. How'd that go? Over? <laughs> <laughs> I just had to, you know, I couldn't, I just couldn't face it. And, um, there was one day that the day that really, really nailed it home to me was, um, I was in the airport and this was long before nine 11. So, uh, uh, it was a slightly different airport scenario. Right. But, um, I was on the phone with my manager at the time, and I was doing like Joe Pesci and JFK, where he's just banging the phone on the thing, going, You goddamn motherfucker, son of a bitch. I'm doing that in the middle of an airport, and they took me into a little room, and they said, Look, you need to calm down because you're frightening the other passengers. Right. Um, and I said, Okay, this is really out of control here. Um, what were you doing? What were you yelling at him about? Who knows? Free floating rage. You, oh, you I just, was yelling about anything and everything. Right, right. That, that's my thing. When I'm fucked up, when I am really off balance, when I don't have my shit together, it always manifests itself as rage. Oh, me too. I know. Okay. Don't yell <laughs> at me. Who are you telling? Hey, fuck you. I don't need to take <laughs> shit. Been, I've been on the the, the other this end of that rage. This is my fucking garage. <laughs> really? Now, I yelled at you? See, now that, that warms me. Yeah, <laughs> that's weird when you rage. When so, when you're a rager and someone yells at you, you're like, oh, it's so sweet. <laughs> it's it's so calming. Home. <laughs> I didn't yell at you. Oh, you yelled at everybody. I did? Oh, yeah. All right, so you can't, did you get, get to the point where you were waiting to go on stage and they said Paul Provenza and you couldn't go on stage? Oh, I did. I, like before I left that, when I had um, gigs booked in town, just like showcase gigs or something, I would just end up vomiting before I even got to my Holy car. shit. I get, you know, I'm actually a little- I mean, I've been doing this essentially since I was 16. I know, I know, but I'm afraid of this because I've heard this happen to other people that, you know, mid-career, three quarters of the way in, wherever you are, 20 years in, that all of a sudden you just, you get this paralyzed- You know what happened to Shecky Green? It happened to Shecky Green in like his 60s. I want to talk to him. Have you talked to him? I have not talked to him, no. You read about it? No. I, Max Alexander called me one day from the sound booth of like Caesar's Palace in the middle of the afternoon, and he goes, listen to this, and he puts the, the, his phone out into the open uh, theater, 
And um, it was Shecky playing to an empty house, trying to get over his stage fright, trying to remember his act, trying to get, just trying to feel that muscle. How long ago was that? He's out. This was a while ago. This was, this was before I, but it was long before. It was maybe 15 years ago, maybe more. Because he's still working. He came back, but it was, he had a, a really tough But he's got to be 75 years old. How old is he? 80 years That's old? That's right, dude. It's going to happen to you at some point. You got to get used to that. No, getting old. I know. I understand. <laughs> no, that, no. I mean stage fright. You're a classic. You're you're a classic candidate. But I feel like I just got over <laughs> it. I feel like this is like for the first time in my life in the last few years, I'm literally unafraid, completely unafraid up there. Well, that's great. That that's good for you. You may have saw, you may have avoided it. Um, but uh, what I had to do was so so when I committed to going, you know, to overcoming this stage fright, um, I said I'm going to go back to New York. And uh, I went to New York for about four months and just to do, because, you know, I, I knew I could get way more stage time in New York uh, and it would be easier and more comfortable. You going back to those clubs you started in with all well, those kids, like the comic strip? Uh, no, the Comedy Cellar was really uh, a, 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 an oasis for me. So uh, and, you know, great great comics hanging out there all the time sure. you know colin quinn and david tell and just terrific comics and, and everybody so knows you for years everybody knows me for years and everything so i, I figured well this would be kind of a comfortable homey kind of thing you know uh and um so the first week that i got there you know i had like three or four primetime spots and mm. just it was a disaster it was a nightmare and it's a hard um, room well and i was far from ready for it right uh and then after a couple of weeks of being overly generous you know they started cutting back on the spots and they were moving them later and later yeah and uh, and this is a room that i used to just destroy i mean there was no way i would get on that stage without tearing it up i was right. machine gun the whole place you know and it was a nightmare you know so I said, this is really this is, this is running seriously deep <laughs> So I spent a few months in New York, and um, um, and I, I kind of realized what I think my own internal thing was about this, was that I was having trouble silencing the voices that I'm imagining outside of my head that are judging me. The audience thought you were making up an audience? Other comics. Oh. In the back of my head, I was imagining myself being a comic, watching somebody like myself trying to reinvent and sitting back and going oh what is this shit you know what what, what is this come on what oh. was he trying to was he trying to do stay young and hip and relevant and blah 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 oh and, yeah. and that's not what my motivation was you know but i had seen david brenner go through that i had seen david brenner start wearing leathers and trying to play young clubs and trying to do all these things to try and get a, a younger audience back again and um i could not shut those voices off about the way other people were seeing what i was going through and trying to do i used to kick comic out of the room when i started doing stand-up in new york and atel and mark cohen and all those guys would be in the room i would get on stage and i'd go get out i don't i don't need the pressure I can't. <laughs> okay <laughs> See, that's a, you owned it yeah and utilized it and manifested it that way and that was probably why you didn't go through what i went through but i couldn't own it i and i was i was i was embarrassed by what i was feeling because i felt like that's the only it's the only part of my life where i feel that way i don't give a shit what anybody thinks usually and um uh but i couldn't let go of that so i decided that i would leave the country because uh, I said I, I, I could eliminate the one thing that who knows how long it would take for me to heal for myself, this idea of shutting those voices down. And, and I could just but, show up someplace fully unknown and, and decide and tell them right then and there who I was and what I was about. 
and it actually did work that way. That worked immensely. And I went to another level. I hadn't I hadn't been able to write material for a couple of years at that point. And um, my first gig overseas was in Amsterdam, which is a fluke how I ended up in that gig. Yeah. But I was able to talk myself into it because I could actually sit back and go, well, I'm not working there now. So no matter how badly this goes, you know, I'll at least have but, a weekend in Amsterdam. And uh, it broke on stage. And uh, at like 45 minutes to an hour of stuff that I'd never said before that I had barely even thought about just came pouring out almost full blown and it was at a level that I had never worked at before in my life. So that was the breakthrough. That was the breakthrough. When, when you were in New York though, let me just ask you about that. By the way, within six months I was headlining a room in Paris doing a 90 minute show solo within six months of that Well, break. that's because all your craft was in place. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've I been guess. doing it since yeah. you were 17. So, I mean, it was all there. Yeah, it was you, just the mental, emotional, psychological it, Well, thing. you just had to, like, you know, pull that, that cork out of your heart and, you know, whatever was going to flow through. That's the weird thing, that when you have technique in place and if it starts going, you're just going to have a conversation. Well, uh, once again, like everything else in my life, I've been my worst obstacle. What were, we, what were you telling yourself, though? Did you think that your material wasn't good enough or it wasn't up to par or that it, it was just a matter of, of, of what? Um, you know, because I understand the fear of other comics, but the it, reason I took the time off to begin with was because I felt like I would, I had outgrown myself that, that your stuff from when you were coming up was, was beneath you. Not that it was beneath me. It just wasn't Younger. really me anymore. Right. And, and it wasn't about anything that I really cared about, whatever that, whatever it was. And, you know, as I said, I'd gone through several transitions. Like when I look at my first Tonight Show and then my third Tonight Show and then my fifth Tonight Show. And these are Carson It's like three different Tonight comics. Uh, the early ones were, yeah. Uh, you know, it's like watching three different comics. I mean, I really have shifted and changed. My, my, my act has never been one thing, which is one of the reasons why it's always been hard for me to get an audience because you can't really pin me down. Well, that's, I mean, I feel the same of way. Of course you do. But you haven't changed your haircut, at least. I mean, I've looked, <laughs> in, the, in the last 20 years. If you have the curly hair I have, you can't really change well, your haircut. That's a benefit. <laughs> at least people can recognize you. Oh, that's a guy who I didn't quite get a grasp of before. Right. Me, okay. it's like, is that the same guy with the mustache? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, but I, I, I fall victim to the same thing in some respects, is that if you don't have, I don't know what it is about our hearts or our minds, but if you don't have a, 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 like a very definable angle or hook, Whatever it is, even if it's a personality thing, even if it's a look thing, you can't. People can't latch on. Yeah, like I it's used what, to, It's what it's what they used to mean when you know the old school guys would say, "Well, you got to have a character." You know, right. People have to know who you are. Right. It's not so much a character like, "Oh, I'm going to wear funny glasses." They used to say that. How come no one said that to me? Because uh, you're a character. I am. Yeah, well, definitely. Well, character. when did? Will someone outline it for me? Because <laughs> someone just write it down the traits that I have that. That I should exploit? See, see, you don't have the problem. I, I don't know if you may have had it earlier in your career. What? But you don't have it now. Mm. Um, and I don't believe I have it now, although I don't know, actually. But um, my problem as a comedian in terms of this very thing we're talking about, I always likened myself to a light-skinned black after the, uh, after the Civil War. Mm. I could pass for mainstream. Yeah. And so I would get the mainstream gigs. I would get the mainstream sitcoms. I would get all these kinds of things that were ultimately really unfulfilling to me. Right. You know, corporate dates, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I couldn't 
judge it. I just experienced, I was just experiencing things, you know, but the, but the truth was that, you know, like Sam Kennison would never get a mainstream sitcom, would never get hired for a corporate gig unless it's a corporation of, you know, had he lived, unless we it's do a not chaos know. corporation. Had he lived. I'm talking about when he was alive. Okay. You know, cause there was something very definitive, yes. you know, when, okay. I'm using him as an extreme example. Sure. Um, but I could pass and I could do, you know, clean family friendly stuff and, you know, and, uh, and so I was kind of all over the map. And it was a while before I realized, you know what? I don't want to yeah. pass. I okay. want to be a proud black man. This is the interesting thing is that you became a, a champion of, you became, the way I see it is you were a guy that was, uh, you know, you weren't sure what you wanted, but you knew you were capable of doing this thing. And people were trying to sort of pigeonhole you into something uh, that everybody could eat. You know, right. like, here's, right. here's right. the new sweater the comic. Biggest, the biggest damage in my career, yeah. in parentheses, I mean, in air quotes, uh, was done by agents and managers. Right, because they thought they tried to wedge you into whatever they thought we, it would fit. Right. And you didn't and have And because enough. I could pass, they would send me in but there. And I learned enough skills about how to audition. I, yeah, I had that too, right. Yeah. But I, but you didn't have the spine or the wherewithal to say, I don't want to do that. I, I didn't know. Because here's another interesting thing. Because at some point, I had made the decision that I didn't want to do sitcom anymore. I said, I'm not getting interesting sitcom. And the only sitcom I end up in is this hacky stuff. So I'm just not going to do it anymore. But then after a couple of years of that, I, you know, the self-doubt of, well, am, am I making that decision because I'm afraid of success? Am I making that decision because I, 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 I'm, I'm not working at the level I could be to make something out of this hacky I stuff? I do the same Whatever. Thing. So I began to question whether or not that decision to not do stand to not do um, sitcom anymore was moving towards my fear, confronting my fear, or moving away from my fear. But there's also, it. but there's also always the issue of like. So I tried it again. They want me. Was on what? was on a show. Yeah. Uh, I was on Empty Nest, and I walked off of it. And I went into the producer's office and I said, listen, after a year, after a season, uh, at the end of the season, I said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. Could you please write me out of the show? And they go, well, no, because we have plans. And I go, but look, it, it, it's, it's not going to matter. You know, this isn't a show for me. I'm not a show for you. I'm unhappy. You guys clearly don't really know what to do with me. So I'll make it easy for everybody I want to go. And they go, well, you can't. You have a contract. And I said, well, then sue me because I'm miserable. I, my TMJ was insane. I was chewing my skull up from the inside every day. And uh, so I said... I said, I, I really want off, so, you know, sue me because I'm, I'm just not coming back. And they went, you see, you know, you should be lucky. You should be, you know how many actors in this town want this job? And I said, you see, that's the difference right there. It's not, to you, it's a job for me. For me, it's my life. And this is not what I want to do, period. So you walked off the sitcom. So, I, I, yeah, after a season. But that's that's noble and i'm, and I'm proud of you and i'm glad you I, did i'm not that. saying it for any of those kinds no, of props no i know that i'm saying it because i finally got that figured right, out Right, because i think one of the other issues when you have when you you don't know really where you fit in and you want to fit in or you want to at least make a living in show business is that the idea that somebody wants you it's yeah. like a parental thing it's like right. yeah, they like me right i yeah. know i want to there go. is that there is that for sure oh i mean i you know when i was going out on auditions like i don't even know how to do those i'm too raw to fit i can't even act like i'm on television and I would go out for these things. And what hit me was that I'm reading jokes that are so shitty. Like, I've spent my life creating my shit. And then I go in there and I read like, and then uh, yeah, don't don't step on that because the thing will fall down. And you're like, what the fuck is that? Dude, I was doing Facts of Life one week and I ad-libbed something. Life. You were um, on there? I was just semi-regular on that because I used to open, uh, I used to warm the show up. And then years later, after I hadn't seen them for seven, eight years, they called me out of the blue and said, you know, we've always been looking for something to use you on, and would you come in and do this? And uh, 
And that was kind of a, that was a slightly different situation because I was like, I knew everybody. And I went, well, this will be fun. It'll be fun to do the show. I know what it is going in. I can't get upset or angry at anybody. Uh, you know what? I'll make a little money. It was like, you know, I think it was like six out of 13 or something like that. Um, uh, so, you know, that's manageable. So I went and did that. And at one point I was, you know, ad-libbing something and, and they never used any ad-libs. Um, but one was just really funny, really perfect. It was absolutely no, I mean, you could not say that this was inappropriate by any stretch of the imagination and i just you know said to the head writer at that point and i just said you know really come on can i just get one joke and and he looked at me i go it's so funny it's not hurting anybody <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he looked at me and said this show's not about funny <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> and i just went got it <laughs> i mean it's very conscious you know they are selling something that is they know very clearly what its appeal is, what people love about it, and they don't want to veer from that regardless of whether or not what they veer towards is funnier. They don't care about that. Holy you know? shit. And it's also a control freak thing. Probably, yeah. I, I probably mean, a lot of those you, things in there. You know, it just seems to me that like when funny guys come up with shit that that they don't want they don't want to they don't want to set a precedent. If that's not the relationship they have with you, you're not the writer. That's probably you're not part the funny of it. guy. That's probably part of it. But in the bigger sense of, of the industry, I mean, like think back when you watch things like Gilligan's Island. It was on, you know, a huge icon of our childhoods, right? It was never actually funny, but you loved the characters, you loved the situation. There was something very you, you expected what you got every week, and that's what the show was about. It wasn't about quality comedy, right? You know, so I get that. I kind of know that that's what Facts of Life was about, something endearing and charming and the girls that the teenage girls who watched the show could relate to and all that sort of stuff. And they didn't want to confuse the issue by being funny. Right. <laughs> when I went to Europe, I um, started working like crazy. And uh, um, most of the last 10 years, I've been outside of the country and working around the world, you know, um, playing uh, small money gigs, yeoman comic gigs and loving it. And loving it. And, um, um, you know, playing to English-speaking expat audiences around the world. I became part of a, com a community of comics over in the UK. Did the Edinburgh Festival a bunch of times. In fact, put the green room on its feet in a, in a different context. That's right. Edinburgh I remember Festival seeing you for a over couple there. of years. Yeah. You know, brought it to other festivals. Developed two other projects that, that my partner, Barbara Roman, has, has moved forward. That she instigated in, in those um, festivals and things. And it was a tremendously creative uh, time and I never stopped doing stand up. I did way more stand up in the period that everybody thought I stopped doing stand up than I had ever done since like the early eighties. Wow. Yeah. So, that, but that was where you were. You were actually doing stand up. See, yeah. I didn't know that because I yeah. I'm not the guy. As a matter of fact, when I was doing the Aristocrats, I decided to do the Aristocrats just around the time that I was going back to really um, spend some time. Because I had gone over to Europe for a couple of months, realized what was what was possible there for me, and committed to go back a lot more. And had decided to do the aristocrats in between. So I was out of the country doing stand-up hardcore and then coming back for periods of uh, two or three months at a time just focusing on the aristocrats, shooting it for a few years and then coming back and editing it. Um, that, so I did nothing in this country other than work on that movie for five years. Right. But everywhere else I was doing stand-up. It's so weird to me because, like, I had no idea. Like, I, to, in my mind, you were this guy that was, you know, d d showed up in this movie. And I was like, that's that guy who from the 80s. <laughs> and because I never traveled internationally. And I thought, like, you know, this is Provenza. It's trying to make a comeback, you know, uh, uh, as, as being part of this thing. But it was it wasn't true. You were actually working all yeah, those years yeah. and doing stand up internationally. Doing the best stand up I'd ever done in my life. And now, do you feel bad that you can't, that is this, you don't do it here. Having been out of the club circuit for so long, almost nobody 
that was involved with any of those clubs before is still involved with them. It's mostly 25-year-olds that you're dealing with. Don't know me from Adam. And it's like, uh, all of a sudden, I couldn't get arrested in clubs that I helped establish. Yeah, yeah, that happens all you know? of us, yeah. So what am I going to do? Bang my head against that retarded wall? No. So I just do stand-up now when I feel like it because I- I've been able to spread my wings and do a lot of other things that keep me as creatively involved and interested. Um, and the truth is that I can do stand-up you know, when I want to and when I feel like doing it. And, and there's almost a certain purity in that that uh, I like. The thing that was interesting about the satirists and the way that my, my perception was wrong about you is that like, I always saw you around. We always got along. I knew who you were. We've known each other for 25 years. But then all of a sudden I saw you like championing a type of comedy, you know, that I, you know, I guess I'm part of, but like, these are all peers of mine. These are people that we respect in this book and the satiristas and, and, and also with the aristocrats, this was a, an embracing uh, of the, uh, there was something about the embracing of the community that you become this guy, not unlike what I'm doing here, where you're giving back something to the community, you're putting the, you're making it clear that we have a community and that we have standards and that, you know, we're aware of the business we're in and that some of us are more creative than others, but you know, we love each other on some level is that make well we you know what we are we're like uh we're like marines you know you could be on a business trip to dayton ohio and the guy that manages the restaurant you're eating in was a marine and you have a relationship with him that's what we're like we've both been in the trenches we both know what it is to do stand up and if either one of us has been serious about it there's a bond there like it or hate it but what is your position? What was your agenda with this book, essentially? Well, I'll tell you exactly what, um, uh, how I can characterize it. And by the way, it wasn't this clear when I went into it, but uh, in retrospect, I realized it's exactly what it is. Um, I was clear about this. At a certain point in my life, you know, late 40s, mid-40s, whatever, uh, you know, you do that existential thing. You sit back and go, what's this all been about? And I just realized that my life is more than half over, if I'm lucky, uh, and... Um, uh, you know, what am I, what, what am I going to do? I mean, that's very different. You know, I was still following the path that I set out on when I was 20 and it's taken a million different, you know, twists and turns. Right. And I just, well, what's the path I want to take now? Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, that, that, that ratio of potential and experience has shifted. And so I can't just not question this. So I decided that I was I was going to try and do things rather and again using directing one hundred and one show don't tell rather than try and tell people right like and you know something that was all about what comedy meant to me I wanted people to have the experience of something that would evoke some of what I felt and and it's happening I mean people read satiristas people so even seeing the aristocrats they felt like there was something going on that they wanted to embrace they wanted to become a part of some something unstated it's like watching great musicians jam you just wish you were there you yeah. know you wish you were at that concert so that's my way of giving something back for people to look at comedy because most what most people know about comedy is is you know, and they think they know comedy. That's like if you only listen to top forty radio, actually saying, "I know, I know everything you need to know about music." Yeah, you know, it's just ridiculous. And so, um, uh, it's why I bring a lot of people that aren't really well known into the picture, and I, I bring uh, people from overseas into the picture, so people can see the, the the variety of expressions of comedy and how much real heart and soul there is in it by people who work artfully. 
it's all tempered with a very, very um, um, clear understanding that there's a lot of crap comedy out there and that a lot of people, uh, you know, go to a comedy club thinking they're going to see comedy and they see the same racist, sexist, homophobic, two-dimensional, obvious kind of pandering kind of comedy. That's out there too. So if anything, you know, at least I get a chance to, to put out there some other stuff that illustrates something other than that. This book is is pretty amazing. It's called Satiristas, and I mentioned it before, but I mean, the list of comics in this... In the interest of full disclosure, you're in it. No, I am in it, but like, you know, it's it's a pretty broad range, and there's a lot of people in it, and the format is primarily, it's you, Paul Provenza, in conversation with us, maybe two of us, like uh, with me, it was me and Dana, who's right. just in here, right. uh, and you, uh, talking about comedy, talking about topics, talking about things. Yeah, and what I did was, rather than ask specific questions, to get back to that point about show, not tell, rather than ask specific questions, have you talk specifically about things that I've determined we just had a conversation, right? It meandered, it wandered, it went wherever it wanted. I like reading, and you know, I like reading those kind of conversations. And I just pulled out what I felt relative to everything around it, reflected something unique in particular. And it's uh, interesting. It's more interesting than reading an interview because you don't know where it's going to go. It's not. It's not direct line of thinking, right? Like, and right. you know, the, the, when you're reading it, anything could change with any joke or whatever someone's thinking. But the the people who are in here, and I it mean, also it also flows very particularly. I mean, it took an extra year. We missed our original pub date by a year because of um, the sequencing of it, because I wanted things to unfold. I wanted these conversations to happen in a particular order so that certain things manifested in a particular way. Well, it's a beautiful book. And like, look, dion has been taking pictures of comics for years. Yeah, his work. And by, and by the way, that, that aspect of the conversations as opposed to interviews is driven by Dan's photography. I wanted to do something that was evocative uh, uh, in, and, and sort of, you know, just kind of, gave you thoughts and feelings rather than uh, were specifically linear. You know, what's interesting is you quoted me on your show in the premiere episode mm-hmm. of The Green Room, and he quotes me in his photographer's preface. Yeah, Mark, I hate to say it, but you're, <laughs> you're kind of good. <laughs> no, and really, there's nobody that hates to say it more than I do. Oh, shit. <laughs> can, we, can we talk about all the times you've been a dick to me? Can we talk about that? That'd yeah, be yeah, because I need to... <laughs> let me just push your book a little more before you get into that. All right, okay. <laughs> because it's really amazing, because in the people who are in this book, Judd Apatow, Lily Tomlin, Conan O'Brien, Attell, the Smothers Brothers, Randy Newman, uh, Rick Shapiro, who's mad at me, for, of course, for whatever fucking thing he's making up in his head. You know, Depends Greg, on his meds. Yeah, Greg Proops, Geraldo, the kids in the hall, Richard Lewis, Eddie Brill, Patrice O'Neill, Bill Burr, uh, Jamie Kilstein, Tom Larry. Robert Klein. I mean, this book is a fucking amazing book. It's called Satiristas. It, it really, it actually has, a, it actually is somewhat um, uh, daunting. Um, but I have to tell you, I learned this from the aristocrats. I learned that if you, it, this is a kind of situation where you need everybody and nobody. There's no one person you need if you have everybody. Yeah, Krasner's in here. Yeah, Paul Krasner's uh, Mooney, is really, really Bill Maher. Yeah, well, Krasner, he's, he's, uh, he's said one of the funniest things I, I ever heard, and it was so simple. This is, like Even like Bill Hicks. Is it, like Bill Hicks, as big as everyone makes him and, and whatever mythic presence he has, they, my favorite joke of Bill Hicks is, uh, I've been dating this girl for a year and a half. I, I, I figured it was time to pop the, the big question. You know, why are we still going out? <laughs> yeah. Paul Krasner did a thing. He said, uh, a colonic is an enema with an ideology. 
<laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing about Krasner is he was writing comedy, but he was actually, I mean, you know, like the FBI was, you know, had him on a well, watch sure, list. Sure, he did and the, stuff, uh, you know, the uh, what was it? Well, he worked with the Yippies, uh, Abby Hoffman. And no, Jerry but what Rubin was his and, fucking, uh, his magazine? The Realist. The Realist, the Realist right. Yeah. I wrote for, like, I remember when I wrote twice. I wrote twice for The Realist. By the time I wrote for it, it was like a newsletter. But I was yeah. so excited to have written for The Realist. Oh, it, 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 that was a powerful piece of work. And, and the interesting thing about The Realist is that it was, it was, you couldn't tell when it was being satirical and when it was being real because they would do real true investigative journalism and then they would do some like the parts left out of the Kennedy book you know uh, and what so about was, LBJ was, skull fucking the corpse of Kennedy yeah, was what yeah. got him in trouble well that was a big big uh, troublemaking thing it wasn't what got him in trouble what got him in trouble was his history I mean he was right. you know he was uh, in the, the nexus of the guys that you know who were part of the chicago sure right the, 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 there was a, the great uh, the great uh, lords over the capitalistic religion were very threatened by the idea that these kids were going to socialize the fucking world oh uh, yeah there's actually um there's uh, uh tapes of nixon talking about jerry rubin abby hoffman paul krasner a bunch of other people john going, lennon talking about where they're all they're all but specifically these guys oh, yeah. going going uh, they're all jews right yeah, we got to shut them up. You know, stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nixon himself. Yeah, and Nixon was hilarious. I, I mean, like, a lot <laughs> let me tell you something. Yeah, After yeah. George Bush, we owe Nixon a big fucking apology. <laughs> it's like Nixon's one of the great underrated comedians. <laughs> it's really how you listen to that stuff. You, you know what I mean? Everyone's so judgmental, but. Uh, <laughs> but all right. So how was I an asshole to you? Let's clear it up. Um, I'll clear it up. I don't know. You know. You know you. <laughs> but you see i never got upset because you're you oh fuck i'm glad there's not specific incidents because if there were then it, then it would be you well know. we also had very close mutual friends too so i watched you you know run roughshod over their lives and, who and, and, you know, well uh, beth bernstein was a uh, close friend of both of ours at, at, at one point in time she used to dress you for uh comedy central yeah well look MTV. at that i mean here i am i'm i'm being held hostage in a tv show that was difficult <laughs> And and like, how was I mean to her? I well, I mean, you know, I was crazy. I was. I, that's it. All right, all right, all right. How's she doing? Uh, I, she's doing good. I think. I she was to her in a while. It was a she's problem. She's not talking to you because I'm still friends with you. No, <laughs> no I'm kidding. Come on, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, I remember her. I, I, she, I <laughs> well, because we used, we were both in that weird place with MTV. We were both like doing. We were filling well, was, in for VJs, and we were filling in for the host of I Short never Attention Span Theater, and all well, those that's things, right. I ended you know? up hosting Short Attention Span Theater in the last incarnation of it, and that's where right. she worked with her. Where where right. she worked with me. I did that for a year. That was my first job on television, and I I was horrendous in that job because I was the kind of comic. I started out the kind of comic you wanted to be and then I was going broke because I couldn't get fucking work and it's 1989 and I get offered this thing and I'm not in a position to say no because I got no money I got no work I just moved to San Francisco I had nothing except anger and an idea of who I wanted to be which is more than a lot of people when they start out right so they offer me this job and I get there and they got this guy writing for me he's not writing me jokes he's writing these weird segues to to clips of other comics and and, and movies and I'm and I'm I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding okay, me. Okay, this was like, what, 25 years ago? 1992. Okay, see how upset you are now? Imagine what you were like then. That's right. So that's why I got to <laughs> apologize to Beth. <laughs> Maybe you should tell her that I'm sorry. <laughs> she knows. Everybody knows. You're Mark Maron. You're a uh, legend. Oh, uh, Christ. 
but I do love this book, and I appreciate you letting me be part of it. Uh, I'm is really there, thrilled that you're that you are part of is it. Is there a website that people can go to? Yes, satirises.com. We're also posting interviews that got cut out of the book for length and and various other things. Um, Drew Carey's interview is up there right now. Uh, it's terrific, actually. You'll be very very surprised. Uh, so satirises.com and join the Facebook page and the Facebook green room page and the Facebook 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 yeah, sure. page, and, the well, Twitter you, Facebook Facebook Twitter. And, yeah, any all of it to get on it. So. I, have you uh, heard anything about uh, the future of Green Room? No, we won't know for a while because uh, the president of the network, Bob Greenblatt, is leaving. Now his contract is up and he's been a Broadway producer of late. Uh, and um, they just said, you know what, we won't know for a while. They can't make any, you know, they can't, new guys coming in, they got to regroup, blah, blah, blah. It, it doesn't bode well or ill. It just means that we won't know for a while. So if anybody is a fan of the Green Room, Please pop a short little email saying so to greenroom.showtime at gmail.com. Okay. And pick up this book. It's a great book. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, it's um, uh, we're pretty proud of it. Dan's work in it is just beautiful. Well, the yeah. weird thing is like when I first heard about it and, and I'm like, oh, another coffee table book with comedians in it. But like you read these. Like, you know, like I found yeah. myself, like I opened it up and I'm like, oh, shit. You know, like it's it's not that kind of book. No, it's not. It's not. It's actually, again, this is something I'm very proud of, Great shit by the way, book. that whatever it is that I'm doing, whether it's the aristocrats or satiristas or even the green room, whenever anybody tries to explain to somebody else what it is, I mean, I, I'd stand behind people on, you know, on lines and things and I would hear this kind of thing happen. It always ends up with, you just got to see it or you, you, I can't explain right. it. You got to read it. Yeah. I, I can't explain, you know, and that personally, creatively, is awesome. I love that. But yeah. we're back to that square one thing about well, where do you put it? <laughs> you right, know? right, right. No, what but, box? But, what pigeonhole do you fit in? Yeah, I mean, but, it doesn't have to have a box. This is something. This is one of those books. It's like please kill me or any book. Like if it gets a life of its own, you know, if people start to enjoy it and people tell other people about it, that's the kind of book it is. From your lips to Oprah's ears. Yes, sir. <laughs> What, what were you? What was the best moments you had with comics? You know, and putting this together. I mean, because you met. Uh, uh, you I got to tell you, a phenomenal thing happened uh, when I was talking to the Smothers Brothers, because I started talking with Tommy, and then Dickie came in about half an hour later, and um, unfortunately, their publicist insisted that I just do audio, yeah. so I couldn't videotape it. Uh, and they were furious when they found out afterwards. They were like, oh, I can't believe you don't have that on tape. But anyway, um, so I had been talking with Tommy and we got uh, into some things about politics and about his own journey because, you know, after the show was canceled, he became really, really serious, lost his funny, was really in a difficult place, killed their career, A, the cancellation, B, the place that he was at. You know, they ended up having to do like dinner theaters and then and then like work themselves up from like back rooms and restaurants and stuff. I mean, they really, really did go from top to real you know yeah. tragic yeah. for the level they were at circumstances and they just worked their way up and got better and better and and, and came back up on top but um so we were talking about a lot of the politics and everything and then dickie came in and so we had already established some things and dick started jumping in on it we were talking about how you know because they were saying no, where are the baby boomers where are the people that protested in the 60s where are they why aren't they out there protesting this war is it just because their own kids aren't being drafted now what what is the deal you know and and a lot of that kind of conversation and Tommy turned to Dickie at one point and talked about how you know we really should be more relevant you know where, why aren't we doing the stuff that we used to do you know and Dickie goes well our audience is older they're not about that anymore whatever and, and Tommy's like well, what does that matter like why aren't we doing it and they got into this whole thing about a piece of material and a thing that they wanted to do but they're afraid to do but and it was like really we almost sort of became flies on the wall and, right and and they were just having a little 
ideological conversation and and it turned into a writing session talking about like remember that thing we do about this we could rework that to say something about this and do that this and And i was sitting there just like i cannot believe i'm seeing them do this i can't i mean i was like that's like imagine sitting in a room with the you know abbott and costello watching them work only with balls right right right. did you see have you seen them work recently well they retired they retired shortly uh i think right before the book came out they decided they would retire and the funny thing is see what that conversation yielded it's driven by that conversation it is absolutely driven by that conversation they they couldn't figure out a way to be relevant well tommy felt like you know they they they, and he speaks very highly he says if i could do what bill maher does i would do that as loudly as possible he said but i'm just not that bright you know um and so he had been a little bit unsettled you know and um uh i think that that's a big core of their decision to retire because they could make money forever is that in the book back up on top kind of sort of right kind of sort of what was the most surprising thing that happened that were that were there moments where you're like i didn't know this guy had it in him or anything um uh you know what i'm really a fan of eddie brill's piece in the book because eddie brill regardless of 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 you know any work of his that you've seen lately or in the past his journey is really fascinating he describes sort of realizing what a panderer he'd been for most of his life. Well, yeah, he's, he's the phone book. He's all upset about the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> Men's apparel. <laughs> Haberdashery. I can't even remember. Well, that's the thing. I, is, I, I talked know, to him about that. He, he hit that point yeah. where he suddenly had a light switch go on and go, I, wow. I need to talk about something. Yeah, and, and it's particularly interesting from him because he had been coaching other comics for years. Yeah. You know, so it was a, a huge, and it, it was very, very bold of him to be as open about it in the book as he, as he is. I I particularly love that that piece. Well, that's great because I mean I did an episode with him where we went over my Letterman set. So like to sort of answer. Oh, that's great! I got to listen to that one. Well, you should because like a lot of young comics, they 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 think there's some sort of weird key or that they're being ignored. But you know to sort of see how he thinks and how he thinks for the show and how many slots are actually open and what they're looking for. I mean, I, one of the most touching things that happened on this show was I got an email from a guy in Austin. They were doing a showcase. Eddie was flying out there. And this guy had sent the link to Eddie's interview with me uh-huh. to everyone on the showcase. Awesome. To help them prepare. Yeah. It was very yeah. touching. Well, you're doing great stuff, Paul. And it's great to see you. And I'm glad Thank you, you came Thank you, Mark. By. And I'm glad you've been part of some of it. And I hope you're part of more of it. Yeah, and I'll try not to be a dick. Uh, you know what? I don't think you can anymore. Uh, what do you mean? I'm just going to be a dick? No, I, you just can't hurt me. Wait a minute. What? No, you're supposed to say you're not a dick, Mark. You've grown through that. Yeah, but you will be any day now. Paul Provenza. Right, so this so this happens all the time, you know. We get we get to talking after we turn off the mics and, and like, you know, you're asking me about where I'm at and like where I'm at in, in, in my development up there, like what you were saying just now about how what were you saying about the first five years of stand Well, you know, the first, I was talking about the different phases that we go through and, and, and we were sort of comparing and contrasting. But, you know, the first five, six years that you're doing stand-up, yeah. you're just happy to be doing stand-up. And right. you're learning how to kill. You're learning how to be a good stand-up. You're learning craft technique, all that sort of stuff, as well as writing material, whatever. But Which is why the rule of thumb is that, you know, it's 10 years before any comedian has any real sense of an actual voice. Because for five, six years, you just have such a great time doing stand-up. I guess. And figuring it out. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of, lot of challenges that you don't have to go deeply it inward to figure out. It is figuring out how to kill, right. Yeah. You're basically figuring out how to do the job, how to get that audience well, to laugh and enjoying the laughs. Well, this is what happened with me lately is that like with my stand up, like I don't know, like I've moved away from politics and I've moved into my heart 
and my mind. And I feel like right now that, you know, if I can be as authentic as possible and put my heart out there and feel my heart actually being out there, that, that something is happening. Like I had this experience. I was in Aspen, Colorado. I did, uh, I did the closing night. I was the last act and they gave me an hour in this theater and I did this hour. I'm moving through stuff. I don't mind if people are uncomfortable with what I'm talking about. Uh, it's not, I'm not challenging them, challenging them you know, uh, intellectually, but I'm challenging them to accept my emotions. And, uh, if that works, it's great if it doesn't, but then at the end, like you're saying, I, I just laid into this bit that like with that energy of like, I'm going to kill it. You know, this is the closer. Cause I got to get out on this and I made it huge. And I, and I it was interesting to know I could still do that. But what I was talking to you about out there just a moment ago was that like, I don't know how to give and I don't know how to receive love with any sort of uh, trust or, 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 or technique. When did you become aware of that? Well, I became aware of it because, you know, my parents were, were, were very boundaryless people and they were very needy people. And, and I, I find that when I, in my marriages, certainly that like, you know, it was very hard for me to just selflessly give to the woman that I love without feeling like I didn't exist. That it was going to erase me somehow. That somehow loving someone else minimized me. you in some way. Diminished me. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it's a sad emotional handicap to have. Yeah. And then when people love me, I'm like, I don't believe it because my parents right. were so exploitive with right. their love that right. like, I'm like, no, you don't, you don't. So that's what I'm bringing up there on stage is that that dynamic, like, you know, I see guys up there that just, that just love being bathed in admiration, being bathed in, in people's adulation. Right. Like when I get, I'm like, come on, don't fuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or do you think less of the audience? Yeah. Really? It's like, oh, really? You, you, really? I, I, how do you like me that much? <laughs> yeah, it's so sit bloated. down, sit down. <laughs> Yeah, come on. So, so I can't give it. I can't take it. So what the fuck am I doing up there? And, and in my life, it's the same thing. Like I'm up there now and I'm in here now. Barely, I'm just trying to learn how to put my heart out there and yeah. trust that it's not going to be crushed. So the one thing you were talking about at the beginning of the show, a beginning of our interview, is that, you know, now that I have people that are coming out for me a bit, I can trust them. And to be in, like, I did the Purple Onion for three nights. It was just my people. Mm. And to trust them, the people that listen to me on this, is like, okay, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to show you who I am. And that's what I meant before about, you know, when you are when you reach your 40s and you're still having to prove to you know 200 people in a strip mall it keeps in, me it keeps me Columbus. locked locked in the prison of exactly. self exactly that was my that's the point i was making that when you when you know that an audience has already accepted who you are then you feel a little bit you trust you trust them and yourself enough to take some chances and really open up and go that's deeper right. and deeper and become more of a human being but here's the irony i'm not sure, I'm not sure if that's entertainment though uh, uh, well, uh, but it's good for me. But you know what? That's where your craft and technique comes. Just like you said, you know, it's entertainment because you know how to make it entertainment, and right. you need to trust that. Right. What's the, now, but what's here's the, the irony. That, here's the thing that that I learned about it is that the irony is that the more you do that, the less likely you are to have your heart and soul crushed. Right. There are people out there that haters is the new word for them, and I used to hate. You know, I hate buzzwords like yeah. that, like haters. But boy, I'm 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 all for that one. There's some people who are just haters that's it that's all they do is hate and um um you know you read a lot of that on the internet and that can really really fuck somebody up you know they're but, awful but they're for me it's liberating because it reconfirms to me no matter what you do you are not going to make everybody happy and somebody's going to hate you and this goes back to when i was 16 years old my first girlfriend i met her father and i was so nervous he was a really staunch disciplinarian very you know like everything had was was his way you know and and lovely guy but that kind of a personality and um 
uh, I wanted to make a good impression on him and everything. He asked me a few questions, and I was, you know, very, you know, teenage boy with girlfriend's father yeah, yeah. kind of motif there. And um, uh, and at one point afterwards, when I left that night, he said, he said, um, he said, you know, um, if everybody likes you, you can't be really much of a person. I, I fucking, I do a joke that. Like and, that. And, and that was like, huh, interesting. And how interesting for him to have said that. What kind me. of spineless fuck are you if everybody likes if you? If everybody likes you, what, you know, yeah, what, what are you? Yeah. You're, you are lowest common denominator, bland, tasteless. Whatever you are, you whatever probably, you are. A borderline personality disorder. Uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> I think you're right, you know. So, um, and, and that's, that's what I get from reading the internet when I read all the haters uh, and all that. So it liberates me to just go, you know what? I don't give a fuck. And that's one thing that I'm very proud of the book. I'm proud of the Green Room series. And I'm proud of the aristocrats about is that I don't care what anybody thinks of it. I wouldn't have changed a thing. And that is really, really liberating. Fuck. Well, I'm glad we're, you know what, dude? We're doing fine. <laughs> I'm doing better than most. <laughs> well, thank God. Never never had a drug problem or an alcohol problem. So that's, uh, there's is that. Is that true? That's true, yeah. You just have TMJ? It, oh, yeah. Wait, and your nose twitches? Uh, everything twitches. No Coke? Yeah. yeah uh, no Coke? No, none at all. N never. And you know what? I, I, I had chronic rhinitis. Come on. So no my nose never did cocaine in my life. So you're never. serious? Why, why would I lie? You know I'm not lying, right? All right, so I've been wrong. You know, everyone I told that Paul Provenza is all fucked up on coke, I, it was a lie, apparently. I, well, you're laughing, but I was just about to tell you this, that uh, I picked and, and, and picked and picked at the open wound of why can't I get on Letterman back in the late 80s, early 90s? Why can't I get back on Letterman? Why can't I get back on Letterman? Yeah. And... Um, uh, it was revealed to me that they think I was a cokehead and undependable because I had chronic rhinitis. I was always sniffling and blowing my nose. I went to allergists three times a week for like four years. I went, I did a special a whole diet thing and I had chronic rhinitis, sinus infections all the time. So I always had problems with my nose running and having to blow my nose and being stuffed up and everything. And I had this manic energy. So you smoke pot though. First time in my life at 38. Okay, but now you smoke it pretty regularly. I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> but no coke, no booze, really. No, never, never, so never. I mean, amazing. you know, I'll, I'll have a couple of beers. God, now I, I but fucking I've never you. touched coke in my life. That's amazing. I went through the '70s, the '80s, and the '90s. Oh, I thought you were such a fucking blow monkey, and I thought you never. were on it now. Never. Everybody thinks I am. Oh my never. god, let's fucking dispel that. Are you telling me the truth? It, I swear, I have Amish? no reason to lie about this. I would right. be, I'd be hanging out with so many more cooler people if I did coke. Oh, not at this age, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the kids now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, oh, yeah, Paul. no, never. Oh, good. Good to know. <laughs> that's it. Paul Provenza and the Chelsea Hotel. I'm I'm going to say farewell to both. And uh, farewell to you guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you liked that. It was great seeing Paul. I, I'm glad we cleared up that cocaine thing. Also... What have I got to tell you? JustCoffee.coop, of course, as always, at WTFPod.com. Uh, please go to PunchlineMagazine.com and enjoy some comedic news. Thanks again for listening, and please go to WTFPod.com. Get on the mailing list. Send a little money, because I got to travel, and I just built a deck. Because I had to. This is not gratuitous. Is that the word I want? It's not extravagant. It's not uh, uh, over the top. People were falling through the deck. Did you want children to hurt themselves? Please donate to the show if you can. I appreciate all your support and uh, be careful.